Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm NP Education Specialist Kimmy Hauser, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, The Impact of Racial and Ethnic Disparities, Menopausal Women, and the Role of the NP. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that for the first time, NP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program by visiting aanp.org forward slash CE Center, then completing the post-test and evaluation. NPs in clinical practice will undoubtedly face patients experiencing symptoms of menopause and perimenopause, many of whom have experienced cultural, racial, and ethnic disparities which may undermine their care. Before initiating this important conversation, NPs must understand current guidelines for systemic versus genitourinary symptoms and be able to address common misconceptions regarding treatment to provide culturally sensitive care. I'm excited about this episode because our experts are going to discuss how to initiate effective and respectful conversations that will lead to better patient health and improved outcomes. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts for today's podcast, nurse practitioner Nancy Berman and women's health nurse practitioner Khalil de Montbrion. Nancy and Khalil, please take a few moments to introduce yourselves to our audience. Welcome to our podcast on the impact of racial and ethnic disparities, menopausal women and the role of the NP. I'm Nancy Berman. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Detroit suburbs. I've been a nurse practitioner since 1978, and I'm currently menopause practitioner by the North American Menopause Society. I really enjoy a diverse practice. I see women and specialize in their care, covering all aspects of menopause. I'm very involved in osteoporosis management, menopause management, and enjoy bringing lectures to nurse practitioner audiences. And I really look forward to our podcast today and welcome my co-faculty, Khalil. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Khalil Demambrian. I am very excited to be working with Nancy, who is a longtime colleague of mine on this collaboration. Uh, I'm a women's health nurse practitioner and have been taking care of women for approximately 35 years across the lifespan. Uh, currently, I'm a women's health medical director in a very large facility in Columbia, South Carolina, where we have about 50 uh, providers who I oversee in the provision of their primary care and comprehensive care to women. Definitely uh, can appreciate the clinical aspects and negative sequelae related to menopause as it impacts health across the women in the midlife. So I'm really excited about this talk and just looking forward to sitting back, uh, making this a very relaxed conversation and hope you enjoy our presentation. Yeah, thanks, Khalil. This podcast has come about as we do have significant data at this time addressing the disparities in menopause care to women of color. And it's really important to understand that this is documented with data 
that there is a difference and there's difference in the way women experience menopause as well as the amount of care and management and access to treatment that women have. So through the talk today, we'll be talking about menopausal symptoms and some of the differences in racial and ethnic groups, as well as comparing and contrasting treatments, as well as identifying the way we as nurse practitioners can improve on this care to women of color. So to begin with, let's talk about an overview of menopause. And I think you all know that menopause is defined as a woman is menopausal at her final period, but it's not known until 12 months later. 12 months, no period, that was the final period, and that is when a woman becomes postmenopausal. I'm sure all of you, like myself, have had women ask for blood tests. I've had women come in and say, I think I'm going through the change. I want to know, can you do some blood tests? And what I explain to women is we really don't do blood work. We don't test hormone levels or FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, in most cases because we manage women based on symptoms. And we know that there are clinicians out in the community who still do varying saliva tests and large panels of blood work to determine compounded treatments and so on. But based on the North American Menopause Society guidelines, as well as the Endocrinology Society, we know that that does not have a place in practice. So we identify women who are going through symptomatic issues and this can start early in the perimenopause, which is typically in the mid-40s. Or we see women who are much older when they're truly estrogen deficient who may have more symptomatology. And we know that there is a variation on when these symptoms develop based on, on color. And I know Khalil will speak to that in a few minutes. So what are the common symptoms of women who are going through menopause, postmenopausal, and we know that primarily vasomotor symptoms, which occur in the majority of women, commonly known as hot flashes. And you know how women will often say to us, I don't know if I'm having hot flashes. And of course, we can then say to them, then you probably are not. Because most women who are suffering with flashes, they know it. Um, there are women who have more daytime, uh, tell me that it's difficult at work because I'm trying to give a presentation and I'm suddenly showing wet forehead or women who are um, unfortunately being woken from sleep at night, very uncomfortable, even having to change bed linens and whatever they wear to sleep in. And what we know about sleep disturbance is that it is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So it's important to identify women who are suffering, women who have areas of concern regarding mood changes, depression, cognitive changes, that idea that I, I just can't pull names out of my head. I watch Jeopardy and I know the answer, but I can't come up with it. And it's also important to note that the new term for changes of vaginal health in the vaginal ecosystem is now genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. And I'm on a mission to identify these problems women have. There are many women who think, oh, I have pain with intercourse or I'm dry, irritated, itchy. 
I'm having recurrent urinary tract infections. And many women just think that many of those symptoms are just something with aging. I have to live with it. We need to be proactive in asking the questions. Uh, we need to understand available treatments, interventions that we can speak to our patients about. And as we approach the issue of racial and ethnic disparities, I also want to mention that we know that women who are of menopausal age today are women who've come through a, a different time, who perhaps grew up. And the one of the studies we're going to talk about in a bit is the most important study, the SWAN study, which is a 25-year study of women's health across the nation. And this very large study of over 16,000 women looked at the six domains of menopausal symptoms and looked at the difference in uh, women who are white versus black women. In that study, the, it was beyond the study's uh, ability to look at Chinese, Japanese, Hispanic women. It was beyond the scope of the published data. But in the meantime, we have to understand the women that we're seeing, and many grew up in a time that was the Jim Crow time where civil rights uh, were not as they are today, where there was more racial discrimination and segregation, impacts on housing, education, employment, and healthcare. And so as we approach our patients, we certainly need to individualize, understand menopause, understand differences in white versus black women, and some of the things that impact decision-making and how some women again think, well, this is what my mother dealt with and I just have to deal with it. Khalil, what then would you begin to say about the difference in experience of the menopause transition for black women? Thank you, Nancy. And I think that's a great segue for me to kind of chime in. You mentioned the SWAN study or the study for women's health across the nation and it being a multi-site longitudinal epidemiologic study designed to examine uh, the health of women during the middle years. And so I really want to highlight that this piece of research and this target is for women in this particular area specific to where we're addressing uh, this menopausal symptoms. The study began in 1994, and keep in mind that the goals of the research was to help the scientists and healthcare providers such as ourselves, along with women, learn uh, how life experiences affect their health and quality of life during this particular aspect of aging. I'm gonna highlight some, some data that was uh, presented, uh, actually extracted from the study and actually voiced by uh, Beth Levine in our article, What Experts Want Women of Color to Know About Menopause. In this article, she reminds us that the analysis of the SWAN suggests that women of color reach menopause earlier and experience more intense symptoms compared to white women. Uh, women of color tend to enter perimenopause and menopause at earlier ages than their white peers and have longer transitional periods. Additionally, women of color uh, experience more intense hot flashes and vaginal symptoms. More specifically, Black, Asian, Latino women on average began menopause earlier than uh, white women. 
if we think about the average age of menopause being presented to us, it's usually about 51 or we could say 51.4 years. However, Latino women seem to experience theirs uh, 1.7 years earlier, Chinese women 1.2 years earlier, and uh, black women 1.2 years earlier. We're also going to speak when we use the term black. Some folks use it interchangeably, black and African and African-American. Uh, we'll talk a little later about microaggressions. African-American can be perceived, uh, you know, not culturally accepted or individually accepted. So I want to highlight that when we use the term black, this is the demographic in which we're speaking of. Um, black women take longer to transition to menopause, at least partly because the irregular bleeding that characterizes this transition usually starts at an earlier age, according to one 2017 study. Some groups experience the symptoms associated with menopause even late into the transition. For example, the average duration of menopause related to hot flashes and night sweats was 6.5 years in non-Hispanic white women in the SWAN. However, we know it, the SWAN notes that in, in Latino women, it was 8.9 years, and in African-American women, an astounding 10.1 years. Uh, one contributing researcher to the SWAN notes that lean black women or thin black women, as opposed to black w women of obesity, are more likely to have the longest lasting and more severe hot flashes. Yeah, and Khalil, yeah, I just wanted to mention, I think that's such an important point that, you know, I'm somebody who's been in practice for a really long time. And when you practice long, you really learn, you get historical perspective. And I think that ultimately what we're going to really talk about here today is that we're the advocate and we're going to take this information and then really address it with our patients. And one of the things based on what you're saying is, you know, we used to think that, you know, it was thought that hot flashes weren't lasting that long. And so the idea that treatment, especially when we talk about hormonal treatment, that we had to really... Um, keep it at a certain short period of time. But what's happened more recently is that the identification of need of these women who are having symptoms longer, that we don't have to just stop hormone therapy, for example, that, you know, uh, many of you may have experienced what I have a few times of a woman whose insurance notes that she's over 65 and she's still in hormone therapy and you get a nasty letter from insurance saying you're prescribing something very dangerous for a woman but we have support from both the american college of OB/GYN and from nams and endocrinology society that we don't have to just say by age you must stop we don't start uh, hormone therapy uh, generally, we want to not start it beyond the age of 60, but if our, if our over 65-year-old patient and her cardiovascular risk allows it and she just really is suffering that because of data and safety that we need to individualize and, and always, again, be our patient advocate. Just wanted to mention that while we talk about how long these significant uh, hot flashes can take uh, a woman and her quality of life in, into not being very pleasant. I think that's a good point, Nancy. And, and you know, I kind of often 
as I have patients that come in or you and I, we often find ourselves in these clinical conversations with our other colleagues across the country. And I always inject or attempt to inject this point of humor when we speak to the duration of hot flashes. And I always mention, I promise you, my wife has been having a hot flash for at least 20 years. So uh, yes, she's an African-American female. And so the sequelae and the duration is definitely uh, extended. Um, obviously my wife's experience is not generalizable as a scientific point of merit, but I try to include it as a piece of humor. So I think you bring up a good point. And that continues to take us on, uh, Nancy, to, to, you know, as we continue to talk about these, you know, we just gave you some data on menopause and racial uh, components. And now let's look at some of the ethnic, this, uh, the, the contributing factors that may contribute to these ethnic uh, disparities. And so to put this in a, in a very succinct framework, we're going to kind of use the biopsychosocial uh, model of health. And for those who are familiar with the uh, this model. It's particularly a Venn diagram that has three circles, uh, a bio circle that kind of looks at uh, physiological pathology. Uh, psycho is a uh, circle, uh, looks at your emotions and behaviors, and then social. We look at the socioeconomic, social, environmental, and cultural factors such as work and how these impact uh, health. I would be remiss though if I did not over broadly suggest as we enter this, this discussion or bring up the social determinants of health. And I'll give you a quick definition from the World Health Organization. Uh, they say that social uh, determinants of health are non-medical factors that influence health outcomes. And what we'll see from, as I provide examples of the social determinants of health, such as income, social protection, education, uh, unemployment, job security, working lifestyles, food insecurities, housing, structural conflict, we'll see how research over time has demonstrated that approximately 30 to 55% of health outcomes can be attributable to the social determinants of health and their impact. So having looked at that broadly, the social determinants of health, well, let's talk about structural racism real very quickly. We'll go to our our colleagues, the American Medical Association, and they define structural racism as the totality of ways in which society foster racial discrimination through uh, mutually reinforcing systems of housing, education, and the uh, items such as I gave uh, earlier, uh, earnings, benefits, um, and how they uh, will kind of serve as a, like a pathway to, to enforcing these social determinants of health. So in other words, it can be said that Racism, racism is the root of uh, social determinants of health. Uh, before I leave this area of uh, the discussion, I do want to talk, speak on microaggressions. Uh, microaggressions is a word or, uh, that we hear a lot nowadays. It was actually coined in, in 1970s by a psychiatrist uh, Chester Pierce, MD, and it really alludes to things like uh, subtle insults, abuse, uh, disrespect. Um, things that people say in their normal uh, everyday conversation, but really have a definite or a different connotation. If they are brief or commonplace verbal behavior or environmental, uh, their indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate host hostility, der uh, derogatory or negative slights or insults. I'll give you a personal example. 
this happens to be a lot. You know, my my, my name is Khalil Demambrian. It's French and Arabic. And I'll meet a new patient that comes in and they'll say, oh, you're not, you're not what I expected you to be. And I'll like, well, what do you mean? They'll say, well, I expected you to be some foreign, you know, doctor or some foreign individual. Or they'll, you know, come in and they'll see my name and they'll look at me. And so I'm, you know, a light-skinned African-American male with curly hair. And they'll look at my name and they'll say, what are you? And so that is a classic example of a microaggression. Uh, other examples of microaggressions that we often hear and probably don't give full cognitive credit to is uh, you don't act black or you're black. You're black. I'm more tan than you are. Uh, I can say I can say that because I have a lot of black friends or uh, you don't act like other black people. You speak so well. You know, so things like that are, are microaggressions. And I, again, I bring that to bear because as we move into our next segment of how do we as clinicians address barriers in practice, my uh, take on that as we move into this section would be it starts with our own recognition of how are we addressing our, our patients, our women, and how are we accepting our feed when they give us feedback on their menopausal symptoms or postmenopausal symptoms, how, how do we embrace what they're bringing to us? And so I really want to highlight that as a clinician is again, she's bringing that, uh, that experience, that experience of this health phenomena to us. And as we look out to primary care, again, I'm in primary care. And as we address many of the clinical aspects that, uh, Nancy spoke on, it starts with us as clinicians. And so having said that, I'm going to go ahead and we'll talk about addressing those barriers and I'll yeah, pass it and, on to Nancy. Yeah, Khalil, if I could just, what, what I wanted to do here is maybe just to give a little more um, substance about the SWAN study before mm -hmm. we move into mm -hmm. addressing barriers, because the SWAN study is so, so critical. And as as you've already heard, you know, the SWAN study looked at six domains, and that was vasomotor symptoms, depressive sleep characteristics, cardiometabolic health, physical function, health-related quality of life. And the SWAN study had to start with, based on a, a, a construct that structural racism, which they viewed as differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. And so what they found was, in addition to the difference in age of starting symptoms, is that there was evidence of disparities, that it emphasized the role of social disadvantage and, and that is likely related to structural racism. There are real physical and physiologic and, and risk that comes with this. An earlier age at menopause is relevant because there's increased risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. Black women having more frequent, severe, and persistent uh, vasomotor symptoms, more depression, poor sleep quality, and all of this impacts, and, and again, when with less likely to receive treatment, that all of this increases cardiovascular risk in a population that already has um, statistically higher rates of obesity, hypertension, diabetes. So it, it's real. There's, there's pathophysiologic reasons that the black uh, woman is at greater risk. And 
So we as nurse practitioners need to be aware that that helping women, again, advocating for treating symptoms may not just reduce the symptom of the moment, but may impact long-term health. Um, so what Swan documented is black women's experience of reproductive aging is different than white. Black women enter midlife with more adverse cardiometabolic profile and more physical limitations. So earlier intervention on blood pressure, LDL, and waist circumference is a key to reducing that cardiovascular risk. So Swan took this idea of structural racism impacting the health of black women and the data supported that to be true. Um, I'm also gonna just mention the, a study that is in your uh, reference list that was a look at racial and ethnic disparities, diagnosis and management of menopausal symptoms among midlife veterans. And this was a retrospective EMR study uh, of two years. And what they found that despite evidence of higher menopause burden in, in women of color, that they documented that menopause symptoms and hormone therapy were less common among black compared to white women. And so black women had, had lower odds of both medical record documented evidence of menopause symptoms and prescribed hormone therapy. So I think what we've wanted to do here is set the foundation that there is a difference. There is not only a difference in symptomatology, but risk and access and intervening when appropriate for our patients of color and and data specific to black women in these studies. I think that you know, those are ex those are excellent points. You highlight the, the strengths of and the need of why why do we need studies like SWAN? What but on top of that is you know, education is key even for ourselves as, as providers. And so once we have this data, once we arm ourselves with this new tool of information, how can we again best address address this uh, this health phenomena, and particularly the women of color and Black women, as we talk about addressing access barriers, one of the the thoughts that just jumps off the page, you know, as a primary care provider, and again, many talks that uh, fit in with yourself, Nancy, uh, and other colleagues, uh, often hear, well, we don't have time to address certain aspects during the, the primary care visit. For example, we don't take the time to ask about sleep disturbances or make sure we address that psych, psych, uh, sexual history. We kind of leave that to the gyneco gynecologist. But from a women's health provider, that's one of the aspects that, you know, that we kind of should own that. We should be definitely inquiring about the uh, sexual history because it may be a caveat that leads us to menopause symptomatology. I would beg and say, or, or would state that most women don't come in and just doing their primary care visit and say, hey, I'm tired, I'm having a hot flashes, I have genital urinary symptoms. They're usually concentrated on their diabetes, their hypertension, uh, but we can also make a correlation or a relationship between the fatigue, hot flashes, other symptomatology that can be similar to what we see in primary care. And it may direct us or it should direct us as healthcare providers to really hone in with this population in this mid age 
uh, uh, cohort to ask about hot flashes and ask about these menopausal symptoms. We have to make it a point to get the conversation going as opposed to waiting for the patient to give us that conversation. I think so. To me, that is one of the biggest barriers to uh, in, our, in our practice of, uh, of, of looking at this phenomenon. What do you think there, Nancy? Yeah, I, I agree strongly that as nurse practitioners, we are educators, we are patient advocates and educators, but I want to just speak historically of what we face. As I said, being in practice long, you get to, to go through changes in, in the way we manage things and what happens. And I want to go back in time. About 20 years ago, the Women's Health Initiative, or WHI, was set up and, and promoted as best study of women in hormone therapy that had been done. And that study had three arms. It had women with a uterus who were uh, treated with estrogen and progestin, but it was specifically conjugated estrogen and MPA, methylprogesterone acetate. These women who had a uterus needed to take a progestin to protect against endometrial hyperplasia and cancer. There was an arm of women without a uterus on estrogen alone, the conjugated estrogen, and then a, a placebo group. And in the end, um, the arm of women with a uterus was stopped early due to increased heart attack, stroke, blood clots, and breast cancer. The women in the estrogen alone arm were stopped a year and a half later due to the increase of stroke. The problem is that if you were practicing in this time, the media took this and ran with it. It was all over the papers, all over TV, and basically it scared women from taking their hormone therapy and then prescribers quit prescribing. And it changed very much the whole climate of treating women for menopausal symptoms. The problem is that the average age of women in that study was 65, and they had multiple comorbidities of disease. And what was realized is that those women are not all women. And now we have had smaller studies because WHI was a very large multi-center study. Uh, but we've now had smaller studies that have really taken a group of women who are in the first years after the final period, who are under 60, and have identified that the cardiovascular risk of taking hormone therapy is not what it was in the WHI. Additionally, we have so many options for uh, estrogen that we also have limited data, but data nonetheless that shows that when estrogen is delivered transdermally that and not orally with the first pass through the liver, that there is less risk of thromboembolic event. And so we have more uh, preparations, more options, but the problem is, is that women are afraid of hormone therapy. And I just want to share a patient I just had this week. I have a patient who is on the young side, being in terms of bone health, she's 57 years old, she's black, and she had a bone density, which um, uh, the uh, age to do bone density is 65, unless there are risk factors including fracture as an adult, parent had a hip fracture, glucocorticoid therapy, um, and diabetes. If It's important to know diabetes is a huge risk for bone loss. My patient had a bone density. I didn't order it. She didn't have risk factors, but 
primary care uh, physician ordered it and it came back showing a minus 2.3 at the femoral neck, which is just short of an osteoporotic level of loss, minus 2.5 and lower being osteoporosis. Her 10-year fracture risk is very low by FRAX, the Fracture Risk Assessment Calculation. But the problem is that why is this 57-year-old woman osteopenic, just short of osteoporotic, and a high risk for fracture. So I did a full workup on the patient, and there were no abnormal findings, no PTH elevation, no um, findings. A 24-hour urine showed that she had a, a relatively high bone turnover rate. And But what I want to tell you about this patient is the best treatment for her right now, and she has significant hot flashes. The best treatment is estrogen. Estrogen would decrease the resorption of bone. It, estrogen is bone protective. It would help her flashes, but she wouldn't take it. She did not want anything to do with estrogen. This is one example of what we're dealing with because of what the media and what has happened to women in understanding estrogen. So it's important to say that we need to individualize and we um, know that, as Khalil said, we are the advocate. We need to ask the questions. We need our own knowledge base in management so that we can uh, be the best for our patient in understanding who's okay to take hormone therapy, what are the non-pharmacologic options, and I say normalize the discussion, but help women understand that you don't have to suffer through with symptoms. We have things we can look at, and that it, there's a benefit to health if we intervene to improve sleep, decrease depression, and and that we're probably then going to decrease their cardiovascular risk. So we need to do public health education and ease the burden of symptoms for our patients. We're the advocate, dispel the myths. And, you know, I, I really, hard though I tried, you know, this patient of mine, she has a preconceived uh, fear of taking hormone therapy. You're spot on in this aspect uh, related to us being the, uh, the advocacy. And this sets us up very nicely, you know, I think in our agenda actually, where we talk about the management of the postmenopausal symptoms. I know earlier you've alluded to uh, that we treat and we should treat, we should always treat based on clinical history. There are no lab tests that we just come in and you, you, you're right, we hear women all, always come and say, I need, my, I need my hormones checked. You know, I have colleagues that consult me and say, hey, uh, what, Dr. DeMarmarin, what are, uh, what what labs do our order? She says she's postmenopausal. So we have this conversation a lot. So as we move into this this aspect of our talk uh, assessment, uh, assessing the need of, of 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 treatment, and Nancy, in the terms of managing menopausal symptoms, of course we have ACOG's guidelines. We have the North American Menopausal Society's guidelines. What what can you offer? to us uh, in terms of what are the experts telling us? What are you seeing in the guidelines? And you yourself as one of the contributing authors of many of our national guidelines, and thank you for the great work you do in that area. 
What are you seeing on the landscape? What does the horizon look like for us? Yeah, and I think, you know, and what I said earlier was we need to dispel the myths and break through and give women information. It's like other areas that we manage where the risk-benefit discussion is really important. Women are afraid of estrogen. I think it's First of all, individualize, we need to talk to the patient about the severity of her symptoms and her quality of life. And I find that, of course, women who are not sleeping through the night, who have severe symptoms, are ready to take more risk. But first, the clinical history, as you said, is so critical. Let's establish our patient. And I'm very fortunate. I work in a suburban setting, and I work in a very large internal medicine practice, but I specialize in women's health within that practice. My patients are insured, and my patients have access. Um, Generally, systemic hormone therapy is covered. I think that... Um, So to begin with, yes, we need to individualize, look at our patient. I realize that many of you may work in low resource settings where it may be more difficult to access certain treatments. Um, But the overview is that, and as I said a little bit earlier, that we now have data supporting the fact that there is essentially a window of opportunity to treat our so-called younger postmenopausal women or perimenopausal women where the cardiovascular risk is at, at most worse neutral. So that's discussing risk and benefit. You need to identify your patient's risk factors. I have a patient I just saw a few days ago who is diabetic and not well controlled, and she's hypertensive. She's having hot flashes that are pretty severe, but I made a decision that her cardiovascular risk is too uh, strong for her to be on hormone therapy, but she didn't want hormone therapy, so it was not an issue. Um, I, again, say individualize. um, And so we're going to look at the patient's needs. First of all, if a patient is having vasomotor symptoms, we're looking at systemic therapies. And those systemic therapies involve non-pharmacologic and then pharmacologic hormonal and then pharmacologic non-hormonal. And so after doing an assessment of the patient and feeling them out as well, we need to then start to look at option. And I'm very cautious and it's important to document in your notes that you've discussed the risks, including thromboembolic event, uh, cardiovascular events, the issue of breast cancer risk comes up. So let's talk first about, well, let's talk about non-pharmacologic therapy first. And Khalil, I think you had some thoughts about that. Yeah, so uh, thank you, Nancy. So when we talk about our management, as we move through this, I would say this the structured tier of of management. So anytime we, as nurse practitioners or as clinicians in general, I think we should always start with what can we do that's non-medicine-based. And what I mean by, I should say non-pharmacologic-based to start with. So we want to educate the patient or to 
have some change and where they can have control over this. It's very easy for us to write a prescription. Hey, go take this, follow up with me in three months. But the challenge and the, the earnest is should be on the patient because we're, you know, we're partners in their healthcare and this healthcare relationship. So it's not they come to us and we fix it. I try to approach it as I give you their information to assist you to grow in your health. I'm your partner in your health. I'm your coach in your health. Uh, I'm the expert with the interventions, uh, but you're going to have to take the interventions and my recommendations and suggestions and go home and you're, you're going to have to be the one to implement them and, and, and change things. So with changing things, I often start with changing of lifestyle. So we call them lifestyle interventions. And when we talk about lifestyle interventions, we want to go very, very basic. Again, this is first tier intervention. So Let's have this conversation about smoking. You know, Nancy just mentioned we've done this assessment and maybe she's smoking. So that's ground zero to not just her postmenopausal symptomatology, but her overall health, her cardiovascular risk. We know that uh, cardiovascular health issues are a number one killer for women. Smoking contributes significantly to cardiovascular pathology. So I always start with no smoking. Next, we just talked about cardiovascular pathology. Uh, definitely uh, hypertension is, a, is a, definitely a, a etiological factor there. So we, gotta, we have to control her, her blood pressure, no, limit her salt intake, exercise as appropriate, as recommended. You know, after you've done a thorough assessment based on what she can do physically, uh, definitely offer that as an intervention. We definitely want to look at her lipid profile. What's what's that look like? What what do her triglycerides look like? What does her uh, HDL look like? What does the cholesterol look like? And we need to have this 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 honest conversation with how this impacts the BMI. Many women come in and they're looking for uh, uh, healthcare suggestions in this conversation, and some kind of way we get to the BMI. I use the BMI as a quantitative approach to have this dialogue about healthier interventions. I say that the health, the BMI is like the blood pressure. I don't look at the, the uh, female when I start talking about weight. I say, let's talk about your BMI. The BMI, although it may be a, a, a descriptor of her weight, it's more an indicator of an, a pathologic source of data, uh, so to speak. And so if we look at hypertension and the uh, upper realms of, of hypertension where we would treat with pharmacologic agents, same thing with BMI. Let's look at the BMI as a piece of data for what it is. It's a piece of data that tells us there's an issue about your health status. So definitely had a conversation around BMI. And if we can control our cholesterol and control our blood pressure, you know, we, are, we do know that that can help take her A1C down, her hemoglobin A1C. It definitely can help her prevent diabetes. If we look at diabetes and hypertension, we know that those are in dual, pretty much defined as chronic kidney disease uh, with that progression stage three, four, and five up to end stage renal disease. We know that those are definitely precursors. So I've already alluded to, to regular exercise. We've talked about the BMI and weight. So how, how do we maintain our weight? Well, you know, we do exercise, but we also have to look at what, what are we putting in our bodies? 
what do we eat? Well, you know, why do we eat? Are we eating because we're stressed? Are we eating for nutritional value? And are we making good choices in our nutritional palate? When we feed our families, when we feed ourselves, what we put in our bodies definitely makes up what we are. So when I look across the lifestyle interventions, we sit down and we have a long, hard talk with these first before we even talk about patches or pills or transdermals or we, you got to own this and you got to help her own this. And so we have these these really nice heart to heart talks about you can change some of these things with your lifestyle. You can you can kind of control some of these symptomatology through some of these interventions, which also will contribute to other positive aspects of health. Well, I, I just want to say, I think in terms of lifestyle and specific to our, our patients' menopausal symptoms, some of the specifics, um, you're talking about dietary and health, which can improve overall health and reduce the depression, reduce risk. And, and then there are some specifics to the vasomotor symptoms that women identify their triggers, such as spicy foods, chocolate, um, whether they need to change the temperature in the home, even though a partner is unhappy in whatever direction they're doing it. I think so important that, and with aging, we need to look at bone health and fall risk and, and fall prevention in the home. And are these patients who are really suffering then, I think we, I wanna go to the fact that, so we do have over-the-counter products, dietary supplements that don't require FDA approval. And those supplements, um, there's limited data on most of the things in health food stores. There are a few products we have a little more data on that are considered dietary supplements that I will recommend to women. Um, but again, there's limited data, but some data. But as far as over-the-counter products, you know, I always tell women it's kind of at your own risk. But let, let's also look at the non-hormonal prescription medications specific to hot flashes. You know, my experience, and we know from the publications, nothing works as well as estrogen. And we're gonna talk about the estrogen hormone therapy in a little more detail, but just a, a, a little bit about non-hormonal prescription meds. There is um, some data and some anecdotal information that antidepressants can help women. We did, did have one FDA approved product of a 7.5 milligram paroxetine. And the problem is it was around as a branded product for a long time and, and now it is generic. And the beauty of seven and a half milligrams paroxetine, which is significantly lower than the antidepressant dosing is that there's no need to taper off. There was no weight gain seen in the study. And the side effects were minimal and generally dissipated after the first month. Um, we know that um, other antidepressants are tried as, as well as anticonvulsants, anticholinergics uh, like gabapentin and pregabapentin. But it seems that the SSRIs in some studies are more effective than the anticonvulsants. But we do have these options. You know, obviously our women with history of breast cancer and women on aromatase inhibitors who may really be suffering both vaginally with estrogen deficiency and 
systemic and vasomotor symptoms were a little more limited in so we can look though to these non-hormonal therapies. Did you have any thoughts, Khalil, about treating vasomotor symptoms and menopausal symptoms with non-hormonal therapy? So we always, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, good question and thank you for passing that over. We, we talk about soy-based products and soy-based products have been, you know, in the limelight uh, with some evidence and then we come back and then there's lack of evidence. So I, I think the verdict is still out on, on soy-based product as a whole. But, and then we talk about, I want to say the phytoestrogens. And I also want to kind of think, you know, we talk about uh, things like black coal hash. The, the problem with, with, with those types of uh, interventions are we have no way of regulating what the dose or what the person is taking. It's not just go take black cohosh. I understand the sweet spot was supposed to be 80 milligrams or somewhere in that in that range. We I, I want to err to caution when we talk about the non-hormonal medications, over-the-counter kind of dietary supplements. So you can just flick through Facebook or Instagram or social media, and everybody's got the, the fix, the quick fix or the quick health remedy for these types of things. So I would just err to caution as we to sit down and have these hardcore conversations with our, our, our patients to steer them and try to guide them with the evidence of what we're, we're utilizing. We definitely want to pr uh, approach this from evidence-based interventions. And so that would be the only caveat that I would kind of leave there, uh, Nancy. Uh, yeah, and, and thanks, Khalil, for that. And I, I'm going to go into now systemic hormone therapy. And I think that the racial disparity is not, to me, there's no difference in how I treat women based on race. The main thing is, and what we're saying is, we need to ask the questions, we need to identify women who are suffering, and maybe don't bring it up, don't realize there's health, and yes. don't realize that it's going to impact their overall health. Yes. As we've said, it's not just the suffering with the flashes, it's the, the depression, the sleep disturbance, and the inflammation of physiologic changes and the ultimately even increased cardiovascular risk. So let me just talk about my approach to systemic hormone therapy. So it really is about identifying the severity of symptom and looking at the individual risk factors and whether this is a patient who is safe to even consider systemic hormone therapy, be it she is not presenting with significant cardiovascular risk factors and what is her age if she has not been on it and this is a new initiation is she under 60 and within the 10 years of her last menstrual period and then i want to identify um, has she ever had a thromboembolic event is there history in the family where maybe nobody's picked up on there might be a mutation such as a Leiden factor five um, mutation that's not been identified, make sure the patient is safe to take systemic hormone therapy. I do not prescribe it to women with history of breast cancer. In very few cases where you have a woman who has known uh, breast cancer with negative estrogen receptor, I would still, if in doubt, leave it to the oncologist. I'm not going to prescribe it. So I've identified that my patient is a candidate. We're going to talk about risk, and I'm going to document it in the record, that there is increased risk of blood clot 
and as we've discussed the cardiovascular risk, I'm not going to start it in any woman with unexplained vaginal bleeding or history, again, of any thromboembolic event, active liver disease. And we're going to look at why do we give it? And I'm sure you've all had women who say, for example, I'm losing a lot of hair, I wanna go on estrogen, or I just overall want it to feel better. Well, it's not approved for that. So FDA approval of estrogen is for moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms and not for treatment of osteoporosis, but there is some uh, prevention of osteoporosis listed. So we've identified the patient, I, I then go through risk and benefit and discuss the fact that if she has a uterus, she must take a second hormone to prevent endometrial cancer. You know, it's always fun when I have a patient who doesn't have a uterus and it's like, yes, uh, you know, we only have to deal with one hormone. And then I talk to the patient. Uh, I, I know that um, we have two ways to approach this. We can go with the mini dose and go up if necessary, or the patient who has severe symptoms, I may start at never a high dose, but the average dose, which is comparable across oral and transdermal options, 0.625 oral, which is comparable to a 0.05 milligram patch. Um, we talk about the option for transdermal. Micronized progesterone to protect the uterine lining is taken at HS because it is somewhat sedating, which helps some women who have some sleep disturbance. But we need to prescribe systemic hormone therapy for the right clinical indication, relief of vasomotor symptoms, make sure she's within 10 years of menopause transition, younger than 60, and help her understand that, you know, I'm not guaranteeing safety, but we have data to support that the benefit of this therapy would seem rational if she's willing to take some risk, and there are secondary benefits, which is preventing bone loss. And it may or may not alleviate genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Um, there are some women who need additional boost at the vagina. But we have to talk about risk. Um, we have to uh, oppose with adequate progestin, and adequate is not compounded rub-in on the arm. And counsel the patient appropriately. And I do recommend transdermal to reduce the thromboembolic risk, but there are some patients for logistical reasons may be happier to use a combined oral. And sometimes I start with a combined oral, one copay, not two. And then if they're going to stay on it, you know, this is something we're gonna reassess. We're gonna to talk to them in three months, um, reassess constantly. And there are patients who are, feel so much better that they're reluctant to stop it, to even see what their vasomotor symptoms are like off of it. I'm just gonna quickly run through, I think Khalil, just for the sake of time, I'm just gonna run through the uh, vaginal option. Okay. Before we um, go through a couple cases, mm -hmm. I think that's good. I think that's okay. good. And just so, be just before you do that, Nancy, yes. I just want to echo because I think this is like a very good sweet spot for our primary care providers. I think what you're giving them is like the the bread and butter of our talk. 
we're trying to hit this primary provide care provider. And so we know in the primary care realm, many women are going to pre- present with hypertension as we talk about the contraindications. They're going to pre- present with diabetes. And I just want to say we're talking about untreated hypertension would be a contraindications. So I really want you to have this talk and not just say, oh, she's got high blood pressure. We can't have this conversation or this risk benefit conversation because you have hypertension. You know, you definitely want to look at the history of breast endometrial or estrogen-dependent cancer uh, or, or estrogen-dependent tumor. And, and, you know, definitely women with a first-degree relative for, for breast cancer. But like I said, I really wanted to have you uh, uh, triglycerides greater than 400 is a, is a contraindication. But I really want to, like you said, bring this home to the primary care provider because you're giving them right what they need. So I hated to interject you there but you you're i think you're landing the ship well and i just want to highlight that for our for our for our listeners yeah and 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 thanks cool because the other thing is we we do know that oral versus transdermal impacts lipids differently and that with oral therapy you can get a rise of hdl but the transdermal is uh is generally is easier on the lipids we know that the progestin MPA is harder on the lipids, and I, that's why I generally use the micronized progesterone rather than MPA. Um, as far as we've touched a little bit upon genital urinary syndrome of menopause, and this is really one I'm on the bandwagon because it's an under-discussed and under-treated issue. And it's one of those where women do often say, it's just part of aging. Oh, you mean I can do something? Very important. Vaginal estrogen is not the same as systemic. We have five FDA-approved products on the market. Three are branded, not well covered by insurance, but the companies run um, coupons online. I find on Medicare, the best covered is estradiol vaginal cream, in some cases, conjugated estrogen cream but they're all the same. They do the same thing other than the conjugated estrogen. But most importantly, vaginal estrogen is not absorbed to any significant amount systemically. We don't need to oppose it with progestin. I take a lot of time with patients because as I said, I'm trying to be proactive and aggressive in helping women manage genital urinary syndrome of menopause. It's progressive, UTIs. I've seen a statistic that vaginal estrogen can reduce the frequency by 50%. And if you, if you manage women who are, are much older uh, women that you see lots of recurrent UTIs. Why? There's thinning of the vaginal epithelium. There's more exposure of the urethra. The vaginal ecosystem is not the same because the protective lactobacilli and the do not survive so well. You've got pathogens. You've got uh, urethra exposed. You've got um, you know lots of issues. But very important to know is that there is what's called class labeling. That vaginal estrogen products carry the same black box warning as high doses of oral estrogen. Thought leaders from the Menopause Society went before the FDA to try to get a label change because we know that women talk about using vaginal estrogen in the office. We take the time, then they go pick up their prescription and they take out the package insert, read it and say, I'm not using this. So please take the time to explain the, the 
um, that the labeling is not, it's not um, it, consistent with the risk level of using the product. And so with vaginal estrogen treatment, we are um, doing lots of benefit and the patient who is only having vaginal symptoms should not be on systemic estrogen therapy. We're gonna treat it locally. And there is a, one product that actually, I mentioned we have low-dose vaginal estrogen creams, rings, and tablets, but we also have a vaginal DHEA product which when inserted vaginally, there's intracellular conversion to both estrogen and testosterone. It is a daily use, whereas the other products after a loading dose are twice a week. And the vaginal DHEA is still branded, so it requires insurance and using a coupon. But those, the thought leaders in women's sexual health feel strongly about the impact of testosterone on those tissues or the lack thereof. And of course, we have an oral agent, an estrogen agonist antagonist in the previously called CIRM group. Um, but though the, the risk profile is a little bit different due to some increased thromboembolic risk. But we need to bring it up, whether, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about trying to reduce barriers to menopause care in our uh, women of color and all of the data about the lack in black women of doing this. And when it comes to intervention, all women deserve our, our, our work, our care in, in bringing this up, making sure that women know that they have options. I think those are those are great, great. Nancy, just excellent. Just uh, we've talked a lot to everyone or talked a lot about different aspects of this important health phenomena. We're coming up on our hour and obviously time is short. I know Nancy and I both feel the same way. We can sit here and literally talk on this for hours, but due to time constraints, I, I, I kind of want to bring this and summarize what have we given you today and i hope we've given you tangible information that that helps you go out and 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 become better clinicians better advocates for 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 your patients i really want to encourage you as clinicians to offer management for postmenopausal symptoms uh, whether it be hormone replacement therapy really educate yourself and i challenge you to educate yourself on this health aspect of women know that there are uh, viable means to improve the health outcomes and not only just to help out outcomes of women but their quality of life i mean maybe getting a night of sleep might be the deal breaker you know so we've we've given you some 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 tidbits there we've given you some tidbits on the overview of uh, menopause uh what do we expect to see we've definitely pointed you in the direction of the swan study i would say right now as you're listening to this podcast type in swan study educate yourself on the swan study the merits of of, of the the work and the interventions since 1994 in addressing middle age health phenomena in women and arm yourself as the clinicians we are in primary care uh, and bring this topic up with women, you know, bring it, bring, don't wait for them. Give it, you know, you bring it up. You're, you're, you can lead in this dyad of uh, health improvement. And so those would be the things that I would say 
We've looked at some non-pharmacological interventions as well as pharmacological interventions. We've given you uh, some brief discussion of the contraindications. I think that's kind of where I'm sitting, Nancy. I, I, I hope that, again, we've given you some excellent discussion to move forward in addressing this issue. Um, what do you have for us, Nancy, as we, well, as we close know, well, out? I think you said it all very well, and maybe we can just close with a couple case discussions. And, you know, the first is the 50-year-old woman presenting for her annual exam. She makes a casual comment about her hot flashes. So she's the patient who deserves discussion and documentation of symptoms, unlike the veteran study where it was not documented this was ever done. Counseling regarding symptom relief, including pharmacotherapy options. And so if this patient has, and if she has comorbidities, it's then up to us to make sure we're comfortable on whether we are going to present systemic hormone therapy as an option. And, you know, in this example, she's 50. She's a great age in terms of her cardiovascular risk. The casual comment about hot flashes deserves more attention. You know, how much is this affecting your quality of life? And are you interested to consider systemic hormone therapy? Um, and then the 66-year-old woman, though, who's 12 years post-menopause, important to bring up GSM, general urinary symptoms, and counseling on the use of Vaginal moisturizers, if she's dry, is an option on using adequate lubrication if she's sexually active and is that enough? Or pharmacologic treatment option and how are we going to help her get it if she, you know, and I have to say that this is one of my biggest frustrations in practice is helping women who are insured women and women with Medicare getting vaginal estrogen treatment. But one of the things to note, you know, is if you do prescribe vaginal estrogen cream, a very low dose is enough. And even though the applicator for estradiol vaginal cream is marked at one gram as the lowest dose, I generally prescribe a half gram seems to be enough for most women. And so I tell them, even if your copay is really high, whatever that is, that one tube can last for four or five months. So to be aware of that. So yeah, I think in closing, um, Kula, thanks so much for your inputs. I really appreciate all you've had to say. It's always great to work with you, Nancy. It's always oh, a pleasure. And thank as you. you know, part of doing this uh, this podcast was the was actually the opportunity to, to work with you. So I, I feel uh, actually privileged to be able to uh, share oh, this important. Oh, well, thank you yeah. so much. And I my my appreciation of working for you. But I think in summary, then please know that we see a huge gap in care and that we have the power and it's within our domain to try to improve that and be advocates and be proactive in, in bringing up these issues and offering treatments that are reasonable, safe for the individual patient and effective. And, and that's the best we can do for our patients. So thank you so much for your attention today. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
Well, thank you so much, Khalil and Nancy. It has been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope that you have found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your own practice. If you are a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. Membership gives you access to a wide selection of continuing education activities presented by leading experts available at no cost or at significantly discounted rates for members. Don't forget that you can learn more about menopause and earning continuing education by visiting aanp.org forward slash CE Center. Additionally, you may claim CE credit for this program by registering for the activity, which is completely free, and entering the code MENOPAUSE2022, that is M-E-N-O-P-A-U-S-E-2022, in the participation code prompt under Next Steps button. This code will unlock the access to post-test and evaluation. You'll complete these items to receive your CE credit and your certificate of completion. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.